Hello listener, it's Nina here. Thank you for waiting for this slightly delayed episode of Even the Trunchbull. I've just got a couple of heads up to give you before we start. Number one is, this is an episode that Matt and me recorded in person, which is great, and recorded using just one microphone, which is less great. We're still working on our in-person setup, as we're more and more able to be in the same room together, so thanks for bearing with us on the sound quality. Second, um, this is our remembrance episode for the year. We've got two books about different people's experiences of World War II, and the theme that connects these books is trauma, so as you might expect, some of that might be difficult listening for some people. In particular, the first book we read is about a family of Polish refugees wending their way through Europe at the end of World War II. And our picture book is about a young Navajo boy who gets sent to residential school and then takes part in creating the Navajo Code for the US Marines in World War II and has experiences in combat. You know yourself and what you want to listen to. And if this isn't for you, we completely understand. And we'll see you back here next month. Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. We think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we review a picture book and a chapter book. We start off with books that we read as kids. But if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod, and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. And for November, we're reading books about World War II, and the theme that links these books is trauma. Yeah, so our chapter book is a classic from 1956, which is The Silver Sword by Ian Sorellier. And our picture book is Chester Nez and the Unbreakable Code by Joseph Bruhack and Liz Amini Holmes. And we're going to start with our chapter book, The Silver Sword. And this is one from your childhood, Matt, right? Yeah. Um, so this is a book that my mum read to me and my sister. And it's also written by one of my grandma's uh, secondary school English teachers, apparently. So <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Also, lovely to be in a room with you again. This Aww. is the second one in the trot. I wonder if English. listeners can, like, feel the love. Oh, totally. You can tell the difference <laughs> when I listen to them back. Yeah. It's like... Um, but yeah, no, I've been keen on doing The Silver Sword mm-hmm. for a good while. Um, it really holds up. So I guess I'll tell you what it's about. Yeah. And then we can start chatting about it. It's a refugee story, yeah. so it's set in the Second World War, but actually sort of mostly just after the end yeah. of the war. In a nutshell, it's about some Polish children from Warsaw trying to reconnect with their parents who they've lost during the war, and yeah. they have a kind of meet-up point, which is their grandparents' house in Switzerland. We start with their dad, who is in a prisoner of war labour camp in Germany. Yeah. In 1942, and we start with his escape, and he manages to escape, and then happens across this Polish kid 
called Jan, who has tried to pick his pockets. Can, has successfully picked has, his pockets. Has, well, yes, has very successfully <laughs> picked his pockets and taken, amongst other things, a small silver sword. It's like a paper knife. And he's taken it from their bombed-out home in Warsaw, and it was a present from Joseph Bilicki to his wife, Magritte. Because he meets Jan once. He's, he's made it back to Warsaw and he yeah. makes it back to his family's home. And, and it's been completely blown up. And it's been blown up. He's been told, like, don't bother looking for your kids. Like, wife got carted away. Nazis came back around and blew the house up. The kids were in it. All the doors were locked. Yeah. Your kids are dead. But he sort of won't believe this. So kind of through this whole book, the Silver Sword becomes, like, a bit of a MacGuffin. It's like a, it's a keepsake. It's a lucky charm. It drives everything forward. Apparently, Ian Soraya was given a little silver sword like this himself when he was looking for a way to link all the chapters together of this book. Uh, and he was like, that would work. That would, I'll work that in. Because it does. It links it together really nicely. Yeah. Um, and it becomes this sort of like... This symbol of hope. Yeah. The dad lets this lad, Jan, keep the silver sword that says, if you ever come across my kids... Ruth, Edek and Bronya. Then... You let them know. I'm waiting for them in Switzerland. And I'm waiting for them in Switzerland. And Jan helps him jump onto a goods train. Yeah. And then Jan does meet the three kids. So then the narrative goes, but first, let's find out what happened to the children. And you get a bit of a rewind. Yeah. So what happened to the children after their father was taken away by the Nazis? About a year after that, the Nazis are running out of agricultural workers in Germany. So they're just rounding up mostly Polish women and boys to go and work for free, so as slaves in Germany. And that is what happened to their mum. And when that happened to their mum, Edek, who lives in the top bedroom of the house, right underneath the attic, Edek goes and gets a gun from the attic and shoots at the Nazis as they're leaving with his mum, which is why they come back and bomb the house. Yeah. He breaks down the door, he gets to his sisters, and he tells them what he's done, and Ruth's like, that wasn't very clever, because now they're going to come back. <laughs> At this point in the story, Ruth is 15. 15, yeah. Edek's 13, and Bronya's 5? Yeah. They can't get out of the house, and they can hear the Nazi van coming back for revenge. So they go up into the attic, they break the skylight, and climb out over the rooftops. And luckily it's a terraced house, so they could get a fair bit away by the time the Nazis blow up their house. Yeah. And then they're just living on the streets in Warsaw for like two years. We kind of skip forward two yeah. years, yeah, and like Warsaw's completely bombed out. This is all kind of the first couple of chapters. Mm. The main narrative of the plot doesn't really get picked up until like the very end of the war. And this is then when they meet Jan. Ruth has started um, a school. Loads of kids have come to a school. Once the Russians are in the city, she goes to the army depot and kind of begs, borrows doesn't steal, but she manages to get hold of like things she can write on. A Bible, some slates, some scrap paper. During this time as well, like Edek also goes missing. So... Edek was doing some smuggling. Yeah. He was and he coming caught. into town with butter and cheese sewn into the hem of his coat. He goes to make a delivery of cheese to a house that's currently being raided. So he gets sent off to work the German fields, kind of the same as his mum yeah. was. So yeah, then Edek's kind of not in it for a couple of years as well. They yeah. meet Jan, and they know Jan for a good couple of years before he's got this little box of trinkets, which yeah. he won't let anyone near. He sort of won't tell anyone his name, because he means they've got something against him. Like He's got this cockerel called Jimpy who attacks everyone. He's amazing <laughs> with animals, Jan. 
it takes until his box breaks and the silver sword falls out. Yeah, and Ruth's they're like, like "How have you got that?" Because he sort of said to Joseph, their father, that he would, if he came across kids, tell them about that meeting. But the, the narrator it is very much a kids' book, but lightly deals with trauma. Yeah, and, war had been really bad for his brain, and he just forgot. Yeah, like, it's he'd forgotten all the names. Yeah. He hadn't forgotten the conversation. He knew that that was still a thing he was supposed yeah. to be doing, but he'd not put two and two together. And that I think is completely understandable. It was like two years. Years ago, yeah, yeah. he's been living on the streets. He's probably met many other people. There are some coincidences in this book, listener, that are beyond belief and a bit silly. But I think it's fine. But again, this is a fairy story. Yeah. You do kind of know it's all going to work out all right. That's kind of the story. Like after they meet Jan and they realise that this is their parents' silver sword, they realise they need to go to Switzerland. Yeah. The Russians are in Warsaw at this point. Like the war is over. Um, so they're kind of joining the mass migration of refugees all over Europe yeah. immediately post-war. So most of this book is a journey. Yeah. Mostly they're walking. They do sometimes get a train and they quite often get a ride in the back of a van. Like it's a very sort of slow journey book for the most part, punctuated with absolutely horrible trauma. For all of which, Edek has TB. First thing they do is they go to where he's been posted in his labour camp and find him sort of by chance. And there's this really interesting power dynamic struggle between him and Jan. Because Jan has just stepped into that big brother role in that family and now Edek's back and they both really struggle with that in a really interesting way, I think. Yeah. They're both kind of jealous types and quite fragile masculinity in some ways and so they rub each other the wrong way a lot one of the first things that happens between the two of them is they're with a lot of other refugees on a transport train and everybody's huddled around the fire telling stories and edek stands up and says i've got a story for you and tells the story about how he escaped the nazis and he did that by holding on underneath a train carriage yeah like spread eagled braced over the axles over the axles and says, no, that's nonsense, you'd have fallen off. And he says, well, no, actually, they didn't fall off because we went through this huge puddle. I got soaked with water and then frozen to the train. I mean, no axle. wonder he's got TB. You go, that'd be, yeah, that'd be where the TB's <laughs> from then. <laughs> And he's really weak and really unwell. The other refugees have to break them up because they start brawling about yeah, this. Yeah. And then Jan sulks for ages. There's this friction between those two boys throughout the rest of the book. So this book, it kind of really stuck in my head from when I was lit. My mum had a real reverence for it. I was reading it thinking this could be a book for adults and it Mm. would be a sort of 800-page epic. And it's just sort of like, this happened and then this happened and then this happened and... Like it's not afraid some... of skipping two years here, two years sure. there. Maybe gives it that fairy tale feel mm. as well. But kind of lurking within that is these really, really poignant moments. So the, the bit that always stuck in my head with this book from when I was little. So when they're down in Bavaria, they're staying for a while with a farmer and his wife. He's this really lovely, warm bloke, but really firmly believes in not being gentle with people. Yeah. He's like refugees <laughs> coming and going the whole time. And it's like So they stay there for a while... Because it introduces this character called the Burgermaster, who is really, really interesting. So the Burgermaster is the villain. You know, in terms of like the actual journey they go on, this section is the main climax. But the Burgermaster has basically been tasked by the occupying Americans 
to round up all the Polish refugees and, and send ship them, them back, back to, to Poland. Poland. But I had a lot of sympathy yeah, for me him. Too. He's like, he, he gets it right in the neck from the Americans. They treat him like dirt, and he's sort of privately thinking, maybe you should be nice to the Germans who are trying to cooperate with yeah. you. Maybe you're not the enemy, but there's anti-fraternisation laws that means yeah. that they're compelled to be awful to him. But then his own people hate him. See him he... as a collaborator with... Well, because, well, and he is yeah. coming around yeah. saying we need to requisition your house and your yeah. food and we need to pack you up and send you away. And He was shrewd and conscientious in a rather stupid way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, there's this sense as well from him that almost like it's like, I've got to follow my orders. It's up to them to stay out of my way. Yeah. It's kind of a game. I don't particularly want to send them back, but if I find them, I'm going to. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I know you've got some Polish refugees here. Yeah. I know you have. And I'm going to give you fair warning, going to come for them tomorrow. And I would advise that you don't smuggle them out because there are soldiers posted on the road and they will shoot on sight. Yeah. But, you know, I'll leave you with that information. I'm going away now. 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So while they're staying with, that's it, the wolves. Wolves. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, pictures of their sons on the mantelpiece. On the mantelpiece, and the kids are sort of saying, "Who are these lads?" And say, "Oh." Uh, and they're in Nazi uniform, aren't they? In these pictures. I mean, it's not specified, but I suppose they would be. I mean, they're not commanding officers. I think they've probably not got like the skulls on the caps. No, but, but still. And uh, they say, "Oh yes, the one of them died in the desert at Tobruk, and the other died defending Warsaw from the Russians." So then the kids are saying, oh, we probably saw him. He was probably taking pot shots at us. And Jan's sort of very strongly like, I hate them. I hate them. Yeah. And Jan kind of hates all soldiers, like the American soldiers, the German soldiers, hates them. Yeah. But Ruth's sort of saying like, no, if he was here now, you'd get on. And Mrs. Wolf's saying, you'd definitely get on with him because he got on with the dog the same way you did. Yeah. And it's this real humanizing moment. I mean, reading it now, that's really well played. Yeah. But I remember really consciously having it read to me. There's still so much nationalistic pride and propaganda mm-hmm. around the war that yeah. I had a narrative in my head of the Second World War as good versus evils and yeah. that we had won. And it was this real moment of like, oh, the baddies were just people's kids who lived on a farm yeah. and liked to go canoeing in the summer. Yeah. And had parents who missed them, and it, it's real light touch. But I just like literally had never had that thought before. And that's so impressive in 1951, which is when he started writing that. Yeah. I mean, it's still impressive now. I think, like as Brits, we're still very enamoured with the idea of like World War Two being the honourable war that we won. Like we don't like to look at the empire and all the bad stuff and all the exploitation and colonialism, but we like to look at World War Two through this very, like you said, good versus bad lens, yeah. which just makes any German boy in the army to yeah. be a villain and any British boy in the army to be a hero. So I think it gets that really well. I mean, Ian Serralier was an active pacifist, mm-hmm. part of sort of international pacifist organisations, and he was an air raid warden. And conscientious objector. Yeah, all of that is in there. Mm-hmm. I actually feel like he's quite restrained with a lot of it. It's not very in your face at all. He has Edek using a gun in, like, chapter two. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's, that's it. It's like the, his characters aren't laced with... His own his morals. Own, his yeah. own morals. The other bit that really got me is like when they then have to escape and mm. they canoe down river 
in the middle of the night. Ruth gets stuck going under a bridge in the oh, village. Oh, that bit. That bit is so awful. It's so one of the American soldiers sort of grabs her oar so she has to just let go of the oar and then they shoot at her from the bridge. And at this they? point, it's not wartime. They're refugees. I know. I wanted to talk a bit about the writing style, I think, is very, like you said, light touch, very interesting. So it starts with the Balicki family's dad in the prisoner of war camp and escaping. And that's a really exciting place to start. Like, it's a really rip-roaring adventure type start. And then it goes, before that, we should go back and find out what happened. Shall I read the very beginning? Because I think yeah. it sets up that voice right away. It's so conversational. This is the story of a Polish family and of what happened to them during the Second World War and immediately afterwards. Their home was in a suburb of Warsaw where the father, Joseph Bilicki, was headmaster of a primary school. He and his Swiss wife, Margaret, had three children. In early 1940, the year when the Nazis took Joseph away to prison, Ruth, the eldest, was nearly 13, Eric was 11, and the fair-haired Bronya was three. It's almost like he's writing his own blurb. It's, yeah. it's kind of like, here's what this story's about. This is what we're going to do. He like comes out of the narrative to make commentary sometimes. Like, I don't know if you've ever met a girl braver than Ruth, but I certainly haven't. Yeah. And then there is one chapter... Which is a letter from a British officer to his wife. I love it. I love it. You know, completely not in the narrator's voice, completely separate. And it's about when the kids are in Berlin and Berlin's all bombed out. And one of the things that got bombed was the zoo. And this chimpanzee called Bistro (laughs) has been (laughs) really (laughs) traumatised clearly by all the bombing and has got really aggressive. And addicted to cigarettes. And addicted to cigarettes. (laughs) So I thought that part, that narratorial voice, do you want to find it and read a little bit from the letter? Absolutely, I do. Dearest Jane, he wrote, my unit's been in Berlin a week now, and the queerest things keep happening. How's this for one? I've been attacked by a chimpanzee. Don't worry, I'm quite okay, not hurt at all. On Wednesday, I was sitting in the jeep with my driver, studying a map. I had a cigarette in my mouth and was about to light it when a hand slid over my shoulder, clapped on my lips and tweaked the cigarette out. I looked round and saw a chimpanzee jumping up and down on the back seat with the cigarette in his mouth. (laughs) You never saw such a revolting creature. Huge arms, hairy chest as broad as mine. I love that. Broad as mine. Just slipping in there, by the way. Got Remember, chest. My, my chest is really broad. You could have knocked a pair of us into the middle of next month, but we didn't stay to let him. We streaked out of the door and left him to his dancing. Quite a crowd was gathering. They kept their distance, of course, and I heard someone say the chimp was called Bistro and had escaped from the zoo or what was left of it after the bombing. Come on, Jim, I said to my driver. We'll have to do something about this. But my knees were like jelly, and I think Jim's were too. Then the strangest thing happened. A boy stepped out of the crowd, one of the thousands of urchins that abound in the ruins here. About 11 or 12 years old, I should say, but you can never tell with these kids, they're so undernourished. He was a Pole and his name was Jan, though I didn't know that till afterwards. What his wife's thinking reading this letter? (laughs) I know. (laughs) He walked right on, quite unafraid, and when he was alongside the jeep, he said in a gentle voice, Hello, Bistro. He fished something out of a small wooden box he was carrying, and it made the chimp curious. It was a cigarette and matches. He handed over the cigarette, then the matches. Ooh, waro oomph, said Bistro. And he lit up at once and flung away the matches. I really like this book. The way that Ruth is treated in it is very troubling. Mm. Even her allies, even the men who help her, are almost all inappropriate. So there's this Russian soldier at the beginning when they're in Warsaw who's helping them. He's called Ivan. And he gets them some stuff for their school. Little hussy, he calls her, and then little madam. And then when she's grateful to him, she throws her arms around him and he's like, 
ooh, kissy, like, and, like, yeah. puts what a loud, what if now? the wife could see me now? This kid is 17. I think some of that's deliberate from the yeah. author. Oh, yeah, I think so. Like, I think there's, again, is that comment being made there of, like, mm. you know, what we're getting here is, like, the kid's glossed over version of, like, actual immediate pre-war Central Europe where, like, Ruth would have been in real danger all the time yeah. because she's a 17, 18-year-old girl. Yeah. Right? And, like, any soldier who meets her is like, oh, well, I'm doing you a favour. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it doesn't go further. And I, I agree. I'm not saying that it's um, the author's own view of 17-year-old girls, but it is constant throughout the book. Yeah. Every man, including every helpful man, and Ivan is helpful. Yeah, yeah. Like, can't help but say something about her looks. Yeah. And I, th- I think that probably is true for 1945 soldiers. Yeah. I just, I did not enjoy it. The gender roles are very, very fixed. So right from when the parents are taken away, oh, Edek gets it together and builds them a house and gets a job. And all that Ruth is left to do is like care for the child. The boys do the manual labor and the useful things, you know, practically useful things. And then the girls have the preserve of the emotion and the care of the children. Yeah, but this is set in 1945. I agree. I mean, I also think Ruth's character arc is really interesting because yes. I think at the beginning she's much more passive and she's yeah. much more like Edix. He's two years younger than her. Yeah. He's like man of the house. He goes out and he runs his smuggling racket and then he goes missing and Ruth has to like... Ruth really has to step up. and dad yeah. and everything. Yeah. And she's properly practical. Mm-hmm. And she... Who's your favourite? Jan. Yeah. yeah. Go on then. Why is it Jan? He's this proper cheeky little scamp he's so traumatized isn't so, he so so traumatized like his parents are missing he's like basically on death's door when we meet him ruth's trying to like morally instruct him and it's like you mustn't steal and he's yeah. like why all of our stuff's been bombed everything's been stolen from us we're dying of starvation I'm going to go nick some stuff from, like, these American goods trains. Yeah. She's like, you must apologise and you mustn't steal. And he's like, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> it is really he interesting. Loves her as his mum, but he's yeah. like, <laughs> he gets caught because Eddie tries to stop him yeah. stealing from a goods train. He gets brought into this, like, American pop-up court. Oh, and that then, bit was really interesting as well. And he literally, I think he literally says, it's like... But you Americans are stealing all the German stuff, so why can't we steal some goods from you? We're starving. Yeah. And the Americans are like, ha ha, don't talk about that right here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then also, like, the same room, so was Eddick involved? He's like, no, he's really stupid for a boy of his age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets, he has to do a week in, like, American detention centre that he's, like, afterwards, like, dead proud yeah. about. And Ruth's like, that wasn't really the point. Like, yeah. <laughs> so he's just a proper proper little Jack the lad right at the end as well we're like we think it's all going to be okay like they're literally inside Switzerland but like Edic who's had TB the whole time is dying yeah right like he can barely walk and Ruth's kind of trying to hold it together and not cry and it's the middle of the night and Jan goes Ruth she's like what he says when Edic dies can I have his shoes <laughs> And she's like, he's not going to die. And the answer sort of like, all right, then. <laughs> Such a good bit. He's a real animal lover. He is. He deals with all of his animals dying in this book. At the beginning, he's got a grey kitten. At some other point in the book, you're told the kitten died. Yeah. Then he's got the cockerel. The cockerel gets its 
neck broken in a scrum. And then he's got the dog, and then he has to let the dog go in the big storm so that he can save Edek, who is a person. And that's a really hard decision for him. But it's really interesting having an animal lover as well in a story about war, because it's kind of like, yeah, they're better than people, for sure, in the situations you've been in and been through. Yeah. Like, 100%, you'd have more trust and faith in animals than you would in people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go for Ruth. Ruth has such an arc in this, like you were saying. Like, she has to step into this mother role for Bronya, but she doesn't have to do it for Jan. And she doesn't have to do it for all those children she started the school for, but she does, you know? There's a really good description right at the beginning after the mum is taken away, where she's just really lost, can't really think, can't really do for herself. And then she looks at Edek and she realises that Edek's always happy because Edek's always busy. Mm, So she's like, I'll make a school. She always starts a day with like a Bible story. Maybe part of the dating is when it was written. They refer constantly to the story of Daniel from the Bible. Yes. Like, obviously, you know, you know what that is. <laughs> and like, I got the gist of it from this, but I was like... I, I don't know Daniel from the Bible sure. as well. It's I'm a really, really like, strong image for but, yeah. Ruth, but like it's not such a strong image for us. But I think but he's it's... going like, you know, Daniel and the lion. Yeah. Like, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> she has to be so brave, and there's talking about... um. Her mum gave her a picture of Daniel in the lion's pit to look at, and Daniel's sort of illuminated from a window with bars on it from above, and he's looking up at the window in such a way that, like, the lions can't touch him because he's so full of hope. She sees the lions and the tigers as, you know, poverty and bombs and war, and she's got this big metaphor going the whole time, and they're always... This ties in with the silver sword as well. Like, once the sword appears in the story for the children, it's this beacon. An interesting thing about this book is, like, all the admin that goes into trying to find other people, they're always going into offices with piles of paper and going, right, so there's all these missing children, and can we add a person to this list of missing children? And the soldier's like, I mean, I can write it down. But it works, because at the end, like, some letters do manage to come through. Yeah. They're sent to the, is it the ITS camp? Yes, the International Tracing Service. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the letters has been sitting there since January yeah. for her to show up. But it yeah. is there, and that's amazing yeah. that they managed that and that like anybody managed to find anyone else in all this mess. Like A lot of what happens is that the Russians are handing over territory to the Americans and the French. Yes. And that it's just a mess. And that's partly why they get to slip through time and time again is no one's really sure where everybody else is supposed to be and what they're doing. Well, I think also what's quite, and I think he's sort of very upfront about this, is that by telling you the happy ending version, it shines a light on the thousands of stories that were not that. The war produced countless tragic stories, few of which ended as happily as that of the Balicki family. Yet it would be wrong to pretend that life for the Balickis was at once serene and free of trouble. They had been parted too long and suffered too much. It took time to grow used to a life which was so different from anything they had known before. On the whole, Bronya was the quickest to settle. She had only been four when her mother had been taken away, too young to remember happier days. She had quickly accepted Ruth as her new mother. And through the terrible hardships of the war, Ruth had looked after her with wonderful devotion. Restored now to her parents, she grew up as a happy and gifted child. Erdek was not so fortunate. Many of the children admitted to the village showed signs of tuberculosis. But hardship and lack of good food had made Erdek much more delicate than most. 
He had to be sent away to a sanatorium, and for the first month or two the doctors despaired of his life. And what of Jan, the charming bundle of good intentions and atrocious deeds? <laughs> his complete record, so far as it was known, was sent to the ITS, but nothing came of it and his parents were never traced. So he became a billicky. During the war, his mind had suffered more than his body, and minds usually take longer to heal. I want to talk more about like the representations of trauma. So we've got all of their trauma there at the end. What I think is interesting about Jan is that he starts traumatised. You meet him, and he's already been on the streets for God knows how long. He's already starving. Yeah. He's already amazing at pickpocketing. And it takes him ages to stop fighting at the end. Yeah. But he's that way throughout, you know, like anytime someone tries to help him, he starts trying to fight them, especially if it's someone in a soldier's uniform. I mean, I guess it's like the narratorial voice and it's a book for children, but the way that it sort of judges his behaviour, like his thieving. It's the Christian overtones. Yeah. That is, the, is the one bit of this for me that really is dated, that like living by the Ten Commandments. It's all very finger waggy about Jan in a way that I wasn't super comfortable with, especially the corporal punishment that Ruth deals out. When he's not happy about Ivan, she makes Ivan take away his shoes and he walks around in bare feet for a week until he's sorry enough to yeah. apologise. That, I think, has dated as well, but also is very normal for the time. Shall we do Scariometer? Yeah, I, it's, I mean, it is quite scary, right? Yeah. When I had it read to me, the scariest bit was Eddick having TB. I feel like that's the bit where it deals most with the fact that he very well might die. I mean, you really feel like Eddick's going to die. Yeah. But then, as you know, we mentioned earlier about like American soldiers shooting at the Well, exactly. Well, and the bit with the Nazis legs. right at the beginning is really scary. Yeah, we always end up saying this, like, arguably scarier as an adult. It's always it's tricky hard, as well when it's history place. as well, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's no fantasy element to make it feel safer. Like you said it does feel like a fairy tale, but also... And this isn't a true story. But, you know, it's based on real events. This stuff did happen. And what I think it? in a way that's more upsetting. We're giving you the story of where everything worked out fine. Yeah. And if you want to look through the cracks of that, what I'm really telling you is the story of all of the people who did very nearly make it to meet up with her parents and then got hit by a stray bullet yeah. 80 miles from home. Thinking about what the purpose of a scariometer is, like if you're going to give it to your kids or read it to your kids, give it like a six or a seven? I'd say six. Yeah? Yeah. I had it read aloud to me, as I say, when I was maybe eight, and I think that was fine, which means my yeah. sister was six, and I think that was fine. I've it's seen not... it recommended for 8 to 12-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, which which feels appropriate. I think there's also benefits to this being a war book that isn't about being a soldier. Yeah. It's about being a refugee. Unlike something like Private Peaceful, yeah. you haven't actually got battle scenes. Um, who would we say it's for? I'd say it would be a lovely one to get into schools. I think this is also a really good book for your young budding historian. Lots of children have a real fascination with World War Two now. And I think that this perspective is a really valuable one to add to probably what they're already reading about this. Like things like Goodnight Mr. Tom. And it's really good. We highly recommend it. Great book. Are we ready to move on to Chester Nez? Yeah. So our picture book is much more recent. It's called Chester Nez and the Unbreakable Code. A Navajo Code Talker story. Brilliant book. And it's by Joseph Bruhak and Liz Amini Holmes. 
it's the story of a little Navajo boy called Betoli. And he gets to the age where indigenous people in the US and Canada get sent to boarding school, which is an experience that has been happening to native children for, at this point, over a hundred years. So he gets given this new name because Betoli isn't a Christian name. He gets called Chester and he gets taken to residential school, which is in an old fort where white settler Americans kept Navajo people prisoner. And so the school is sort of impregnated with all this trauma, which keeps the children up at night and gives them nightmares. And also they're being brought up to be Catholics in this school. They get their lovely long hair cut off and they're told that their Navajo ways, their spiritual beliefs, their religious practices are wrong and that the right ones are the Catholic way and that the Navajo language is wrong and that the good language is English and if you speak Navajo they will wash your mouth out with soap. I think it's really, really important to represent this in a book for children because I think all native people in America know about this, but I don't think the rest of us do. No, it was, I mean, it was the specifics of it were all new to me. Right. So a whole generation of kids go through this. Chester goes through this. He gets to go home in the summers. Over the summer, Chester returned home where he could again speak the sacred language the holy people had given Navajo as long ago. When he cared for the sheep and goats and prayed using corn pollen, he felt like a real Navajo living the right way. His heart was strong again. Being home took away the loneliness Chester felt at school. Stays really connected to his own home culture, even while, like, ten months out of the year, it's being violently scrubbed off him Mm. and out of him because they can't get it out of him because it's in his heart. And then there's a skip forward. The US joins World War II. The Japanese Empire has bombed Pearl Harbor. And the US Army need an unbreakable code to use over the radio. And the thing about radio... So you can't encode the wavelengths. Like If you broadcast, yeah, if anyone, anyone can pick it up. Yeah. So if they speak English, the Japanese know English, and they will know what they're saying. So they said that if you don't know Navajo, it's completely impossible to decipher. There's lots of like vowel sounds that, depending on your... like The same mm-hmm. vowel sound can mean four or five different things, depending on like your intonation yeah. of it. So they hire a bunch of young Navajo men, including Chester, to put together a code and... They come up with a word for every letter in English, and then they come up with some codes for, like, ideas and concepts. So, like, they call battleships whales, and destroyers are sharks, and bombs are eggs, and grenades are potatoes. Yeah. So it's this very um, visual sort of language, and it's very nature-based for describing things that are very mechanical and non-natural. Yeah. And it works, so... Chester and his team then teach it to a bunch more Navajo people and those people are deployed and they work on the front and that did help bring the war to a close quicker and it helped the US to win. And then obviously they're all sworn to secrecy the way the people who worked at Bletchley Park here were sworn to secrecy for years and years. Chester comes home with a whole load more trauma. And I think what's really interesting about this book is that the trauma he experiences at residential school is portrayed in the illustrations with these black birds swirling around him. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then you see them coming back when he's in the war and then when he's thinking about the war, he's also surrounded by these black birds as well as these sharks and these whales, which represent, you know, these elements of war. He's also got all the trauma from school. And he does this ceremony, this Navajo ceremony, which the Navajo people did 
for all the men who return from war and for all the children who return from residential school, which I think is super interesting. It's called The Enemy Way, and it takes several days. And I think, quite rightly, it doesn't tell you in this book what that is. But it puts you back on the path of beauty. But it puts you back on the path of beauty. And that's sort of the thread in this book, is that the Navajo way and the right path is sort of what keeps Chester okay. And so then, you know, the postscript is just that Chester got to grow up and became an artist um, and wrote his autobiography. And eventually the Navajo code speakers were recognised by the US government by Reagan, was it? Yeah, so 1982. Yeah, so that's the story. What did you think of it? Love it. I love it so, so much. I had no idea about any of this bit of history. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's also a really well-written and very concise history. Yeah. It's quite wordy for a picture book. Yeah. It's like an educational thing, but it's not overly complicated. It's not difficult to follow. Yeah, so Chester Nez was was a real guy. So mm. quite recent, I think it was 2011 that he published his autobiography. Yeah. Um, died in 2014 at the age of 93. So I think he was the last of these Navajo code talkers to die. You know, I, I want to go away and read his, read his autobiography. Beautifully depicted, as you say, like the pictures are gorgeous. So yeah. that's uh, like really expressive. It looks like it's sort of done with poster paint yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. Big expressive brush strokes. When he gets to the residential school and they cut his hair and his hair is turning into these black crows. Yeah. Which then come back with red eyes and are his nightmares. And then the bit, yeah. as you say, when he goes back home and there's just these very abstract pictures of whales, which I guess is like the, because that's the word they've used for battleships. Yeah. And it's, so it's kind of taking that sort of mechanical and natural thing and then turning that into part of the trauma and the language. So the guy who initially set up this plan was a white guy who was a missionary son who had grown up in a Navajo settlement. Right. So he'd grown up in a Navajo community. So he spoke Navajo mm. and kind of went to the US authorities mm. and said, like, I've got this idea for the code. Yeah. Which they, so they reference him in this story, but they don't name him. Mm. So I thought that was quite interesting as well. Like it's very much kept as kind of, it is Chester's story. They did this in the First World War as well. So quite a few different native languages. So I think Choctaw and Comanche and Navajo. And in the First World War, they literally just had him speaking Navajo over the radios. No one listening knew that language. They were like, what on earth is this? Like there wasn't a code. They were just like, just speak Navajo. This guy who also speaks Navajo on the other end. And then between the two wars, Germany specifically sent some people to America to learn Navajo, just in case. So then when it came back around, they sort of did the same thing again, but then this layer of code on it. They were working with three alphabets. A lot of the ways you break code is like repeated letters. Yes. Um, But then they could choose between different things for like Mm. the same letter. They did a kind of like Cockney rhyming slang. Dispatches would be turned into the dog with patches which works as like a rhyming slang in English, but then once it's translated, it's like absolutely not the same thing. So (laughs) you've just got these layers and layers of code in there. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting from that point of view. The kind of irony, I guess, is too light a word, but the brutality of the fact that these guys who were doing the code breaking, it's like less than 100 years before that. So it's like their grandparents who've been made to do the long walk, which is like forced migration. But that there was this sense of like, even though you've done all that to us, like this is still our land yeah. and we have a common enemy now. Yeah. 
and we're still going to defend our land. What I really loved about this, what sort of like grabbed me about it, was the way that it treats the trauma of residential school with the same amount of respect and sympathy as the trauma that you get from being in a war. Because a lot of people still now think that trauma is just... It's just shell shock. It's just if you were in a war and you can't be traumatised if you weren't in a war. And the fact that they hold those things up to be equally breaking of your soul and equally needing of healing is really interesting. The pivot of this book is Chester's childhood is spent being told Navajo is bad, the Navajo way is bad, the Navajo language is bad. Yeah. Over and over again. And then suddenly it's like, you can save your country, by which we mean our country, with the Navajo language. You know, that one thing that we told you was really bad about you is actually like, you know, this amazing gift. The Navajo language would be an amazing gift, even if it didn't help anybody win World War II. Like, that's important too, I think. There's a line in it where they're talking about what they're doing with Catholicism. And I think it's just the writing is so restrained here. So they've cut off his hair. They've made him into a choir boy. And he's a good choir boy. And he sings in chapel. And the illustration is a profile of him in front of a stained glass window in a church. And it talks about how they didn't want him to pray the Navajo way anymore. Um, They wanted him to pray the Catholic way. And the line says, the Catholic way was good, but so was the Navajo way. I love that. And to just hold them both up as like, these are belief systems, these are faiths, these are relationships to divinity and to God and the universe. And they're both good. It's just that they tried to wipe mine off and paste theirs on. And it couldn't be wiped off because it's inside me. The enemy way bit where it's like, this is a ritual we do. So they've clearly got the part of their culture that's like a bit of a warrior code where it's Mm -hmm. like your land's being threatened, you go and fight to defend it. But then there's also a like, when you come back from that, we sort your head out with all of us here together, supporting you so that you can get back on the path of beauty. That really touched me, that. Illustrations are really, really gorgeous as well. Yeah. It's all, like, slightly blurry, slightly abstract, really expressive. I think the use of the code words standing in for the things the code words mean in the picture is really interesting, so that um, she hasn't drawn a battleship, she's drawn a whale. It's sort of the relationship between the thing and the word, right? Like, you've come up with a different word for the thing, and then suddenly that word sort of superimposes onto that thing so that it looks different to you. If you start calling a battleship a whale, you will start picturing whales when you think of battleships. Mm, mm. And I think that's a really interesting sort of interplay between words and things that they represent and what happens when you create a code. Yeah. And I think that the illustrations play with that really well. I feel like it's very distinct between the job the words are doing and the job the pictures are doing. Yeah. So the words are like down the line fact and then the pictures do the metaphor job it felt really followable and Mm. i think would be for like dead little kids as well this would be a really good one for schools for schoolwork again this is a book with a bit more words than you would normally expect in a picture book and it's not a picture book for like two-year-olds it's more like a primary age book that you would maybe structure like some actual lessons around you might read it once and then talk about what residential schools were and what World War Two was, and then you might read it again with that context and you might talk about how codes work. And There's so many places you could go educationally from this book. It rewards multiple readings. But yeah, really, really powerful, useful. Yeah, highly recommend. And beautiful. 
Are we done with that? I guess so. So that was episode 36 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid... Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod, or on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Just a note on that as well, because this has come up with people I've talked to recently. The way you spell trunchbull is T-R-U-N-C-H... B-U-L-L. It's just how you'd think it is. It's just trunch bull. Yes. <laughs> Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the trunch, trunch bull. bull.